Lisa McVeigh was a 17-year-old girl who was riding her bike home from work. And earlier that day, she had just decided that she was going to take her own life that night when she got home from work. As she rode her bike past the neighborhood church, she noticed a strange car sitting in the parking lot. And Lisa thought it was very suspicious because it was 2 a.m. and there was just one random car sitting underneath a streetlight in the church parking lot. She's looking at it and she's like... It has a mismatched tire. And just as she's thinking that, a man's arm reaches around her and grabs her and pulls her off of her bike from behind. The man pulled her, kicking and screaming, all the way to the suspicious car under the streetlight. He tied her hands, he blindfolded her, and he threw her into the car. But she could still see a little bit underneath her blindfold. So Lisa began carefully looking all around the inside of the car, memorizing every detail she saw. Bright red carpet on the floor of the car. Magnum and big silver letters on the glove box because she wanted to make sure that if she lived, if she got out of this, she'd have enough information to give to the police so her kidnapper could be caught. What Lisa didn't know was that she had just been kidnapped by Tampa's classified ads rapist. But what she did know was that she was going to do whatever it takes to live. And over the next 26 hours, Lisa memorized everything about her kidnapper, got him to trust her, and managed to outsmart serial killer and serial rapist Bobby Joe Long. Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and my podcast is called What It Is because I have a series on YouTube where I post a time lapse video of me cleaning my house while at the same time I'm telling you a true crime story because I love to listen to true crime while I clean. But some people find the cleaning footage too distracting, or they just prefer to listen to their true crime stories and not watch them. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast, so be sure to check out the show notes on each episode for specific trigger warnings. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back. I was thinking, I haven't talked about a serial killer in a while, so that's what we're going to do today. Today, I'm going to tell you about American serial killer and serial rapist Bobby Joe Long. And I like this story. I mean, it's obviously awful and dark and he's the worst, but it has a happy ending. As happy as the ending can be, so I like that part of it. But before I get to the happy ending, let's start from the very beginning. We're jumping right into it. Robert Joseph Long was born on October 14th, 1953 in West Virginia to parents Joe and Luella Long. But he didn't grow up in Virginia. When he was really little, they moved to Miami, which is where he grew up. And like you hear me say about most of the killers on this channel, Bobby Joe had a rough childhood. Big shock. (laughs) Shortly after Bobby was born, it was discovered that he was born with an extra X chromosome. So he was XXY. And this is known as Kleinfelter syndrome or KS. Now, individuals with Kleinfelters produce excess estrogen. They often have smaller than normal genitalia, minimal facial hair, low muscle mass, and typically during puberty, they can develop breasts. They also have an increased risk of anxiety and depression, lung disease, low bone density, and breast cancer. I mean, hormones are no joke. (laughs) But more on this later. Now, being born with KS wasn't the only reason for Bobby having a rough childhood. Bobby's home life was not the greatest either. Luella, Bobby's mother, was only 17 when she gave birth to him, and the dad was 23. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning of their relationship, Joe, the dad, was a total dick to Luella. But I guess that doesn't really matter because Joe only hang around until Bobby was about two and then he peaced out. And Bobby never saw his father again. So Luella was a single mom, but she was never really home. 
she would leave Bobby with whoever, friends or family, so she could go out and have fun and party and drink with her friends. I mean, she was like 19. But this meant when Bobby was little, he didn't really spend much time with his mother at all. Then Luella ended up getting a job as a cocktail waitress. And for this job, she had to wear very revealing clothing, you know, for the tips. And Bobby hated it. And he judged his mother very, very harshly for the way she dressed. And the relationship between Bobby Joe and his mother was... Yikes. He resented her. He hated the way she dressed. He was mad that he never saw her when he was really little. And when he did see his mother, (laughs) it was when they were sleeping in the same bed together. They had a really small one-bedroom apartment. And that's totally fine. There are plenty of families that co-sleep and it works well for their families. (sighs) But Luella would get all dolled up and horned up at work and bring strange men home with her to her bed and have sex with them in the bed next to Bobby Joe. Like almost every night, starting when he was around four years old, and he would have to just roll over and pretend like he was sleeping. Like he's on the same mattress as... That is... That is... Horrifying. That is next level fucked up. That is... Now, not only was Bobby Joe being exposed to this nastiness in his own bed pretty much every day, but he was also an incredibly accident-prone child. And he was horribly wounded, like, a lot. Like, when Bobby was four, his mother took him to the beach. And Bobby, four years old, was swimming in the ocean. And Luella got distracted by a group of hot dudes. And she was over flirting with these guys. And a wave came and swept Bobby out to sea. And she just didn't even notice. The only reason he was saved was that a different group of swimmers saw him and rescued him. I'm sure that was very traumatizing for four-year-old Bobby Joe. Then when Bobby Joe was five, he fell off a swing at a playground and he fell off that swing head first and landed on a vertical stick that was that was sticking out of the ground. Like this is some final destination shit. He landed head first on this stick and it skewered through his eyelid. It's a miracle he didn't lose his eye or lose any of his sight. Like it just went through his eyelid just straight up. When he was six, this was a hell of a year. He was riding his bike one day way too fast because he loved to go fast. And then just bam, he smashed head first, full speed into a parked car. And he received a very severe concussion. A few months later, he fell off a pony, head first, of course, receiving another head injury. Then a few months later, he was playing on a fence. Why? I don't know. Something to do. He was balancing on top of the fence. He slipped, he fell off and landed. You guessed it. Head first. And he needed a bunch of stitches. I don't know. This kid is just top heavy. Then when Bobby Joe was seven, him and his mom were up north visiting family and he was playing in the snow. All of a sudden he gets up and runs right into the street and got hit by a car. And I guess this accident was really, really bad. And if it weren't for the snow on the ground and his big fluffy snowsuit, he would have died. But he got really fucked up. He had another serious head injury. He lost a whole bunch of teeth. He needed a whole bunch of stitches. He broke his jaw. Like he He almost died. Then a few years later, Luella lost her job and she was broke and they were forced to leave their one bedroom apartment and go stay with Luella's mother, Bobby Joe's grandmother. So Bobby's three aunts and seven cousins were already living there and they move in. So now there were five adults and eight children living under one roof. And unfortunately, because of the tight quarters, Bobby Joe and Luella had to continue sharing a bed. And you would think that Luella moving in with her mother would maybe cut down on the amount of gentleman callers that were just creeping into her bed every night. But no, no, Luella kept 
bringing randos from the bar home every night and sleeping with them in her bed with her son laying right there. I mean, that's crazy. Bobby was coming up on his teen years, but I guess he'd been dealing with this since he was, you know, just under four. So it's kind of all he's known. He probably thinks this is totally normal behavior for your mother to, to do, which is so fucked up. And speaking of coming up on his teen years, when Bobby Joe turned 12, he started going through puberty. And because of his Kleinfelter syndrome, he began developing breasts. As if puberty isn't hard enough, you know? And he refused to participate in gym class or sports. If there was swimming involved in his activities, he would always keep his shirt on. And after a couple of years of Bobby just being ruthlessly bullied, Bobby Joe and his mother decided that they were going to go ahead with breast reduction surgery, which I'm sure was really painful and traumatic and frightening for him. And afterwards, Bobby Joe was different. He was angry. He was mad about everything, but he was mostly mad at his mother. And it was at this age that Bobby started lashing out at his mother, telling her she was a crappy mom, telling her he hated the way she dressed. And it was also around this time that when his mother would bring home randos, he would stop pretending to be asleep. And he started actually watching. And he actually grew to kind of enjoy watching his mother have sex with random men. It's awful. This is not normal. Not, this is not normal. Side note, who are these men that are just like, yep, I'm cool with this? (laughs) What the hell? Florida man. (laughs) It's not funny. I laugh when I'm completely shocked. When Bobby Joe turned 13, his mother had saved up enough money for them to move out of grandma's house and get a place of their own. And she managed to get a place that had two bedrooms. But he decided to just keep on sleeping in the same bed with his mom anyway. I mean, you, you gotta admit that, like I said, that's all he's known. So maybe it was kind of scary to go off to his own bedroom. Like, it's easy for us to be like, just go sleep in the other room. Uh, but he is a traumatized, abused, chronically concussed boy. So how could we possibly understand? So from 13 to 14, he just kept sleeping in bed with his mother, watching her sleep with her Barfly one night stands. Finally, when Bobby Joe turned 14, he decided it was time to move to the other bedroom. Thank goodness, finally. And the motivator for that was because Bobby Joe had gotten his first girlfriend. So he wanted a private room to bring his new girlfriend to. (laughs) He can't bring her into his mom's bed. That would be weird. So he's 14 and he meets 13-year-old Cynthia Bartlett, who went by Cindy. And they started dating and they fell in love very quickly. And also very quickly, they became sexually active. And I mean, 13 and 14, that is very young. But against all odds, the two had a very normal, healthy relationship. And Bobby Joe's high school years were pretty uneventful. He did get into a lot of fights at school here and there. I mean, he was a bit violent and he had a short fuse and a bad temper. But I mean, there was really nothing super shocking there in his high school years. 1972, Bobby was 19 and he hadn't graduated high school yet. So he was just like, "Mm, screw this. And he dropped out. And he decides since he didn't get his degree, he was going to join the military. So he joins the army and he does quite well. And then in 1974, Bobby Joe and Cindy got married. He did it. He got out of his wacky mom's house. He married his high school sweetheart and things were pretty normal. But then, and there's always a freaking 
But then, after only being married for a couple of months, Bobby was out riding his motorcycle way too fast, which was very usual for him. I mean, Bobby had a ridiculously large amount of moving violations for speeding on his motorcycle. And Bobby Joe had yet another horrific accident. And this accident really fucked him up and it contributed to turning him into the gem of a person that he ended up being. Bobby Joe was going way too fast and he got hit by a car and he was thrown from his motorcycle, flew almost 100 feet and landed headfirst. Of course he did. Now he was wearing a helmet, but he hit the ground with such force that his helmet split into two pieces and went flying. That top heavy motherfucker. And then after he landed on the ground, his motorcycle landed on top of him. Him. Bobby Joe was rushed to the hospital and even the paramedics in the ambulance did not think that he was going to make it. Bobby Joe's leg was so badly broken that doctors considered amputating it, but they managed to save it against all odds. And he ended up in a big neck and shoulder brace so he couldn't like move his back at all. And he was in a medically induced coma for three days. But he lived and his wife, Cindy, said it was after this 87th head injury. I don't know. I lost count. When he woke up, he was not the same man. He was different. He was angry. He was violent. And for some reason, his sex drive went just through the roof. Before the accident, Cindy said they were having sex a pretty normal, like two to three times a week, you know, average. But after the accident, Bobby Joe was demanding sex from Cindy multiple times a day. And he was pleasuring himself five or more times a day on top of that. Even in the hospital, in his neck and shoulder cast. How? I don't know. In front of the nurses. Can you imagine going in to check that guy's vitals and you're like, ooh, what are you doing? Knock that shit off. And when Cindy would visit Bobby Joe in the hospital, he would demand sex from Cindy there in his hospital bed. Now, eventually Bobby Joe was released from the hospital and sent home. And she was hopeful that if she got him home and he recovered, that he would eventually go back to normal. But listen, Bobby Joe never came back. When they got home from the hospital, he continued to demand sex from Cindy just multiple times a day. She's like, I'm busy. And if she refused, he would force her. Now let's all remember, it doesn't matter if she's your wife. That is still rape. At home, he was incredibly angry and violent. He would fly into a rage just at the snap of a finger. And over little things, like he didn't like the way Cindy cooked his meal. And he began physically abusing Cindy as well. And Cindy would ask his doctors, like, is this going to go away? <laughs> is he gonna, Is this because of the accident? Is he going to get better? Is there anything I can do? And they were like, oh, yeah, just give it time. Like, he'll, he'll get better. Just got to wait it out. Hang in there, kid. <laughs> and while she was waiting it out, Cindy ended up having two kids with Bobby Joe. I mean, he was forcing her to get busy multiple times a day. Of course they had kids. <laughs> but anyway, Cindy put up with this piece of shit waiting for him to get better for six years. And he didn't get better. He got worse. He continued to abuse Cindy sexually, physically, and emotionally. And after they had kids, they started having babysitters come over and he started acting inappropriately with the babysitters. Then one night, Bobby flew into a rage over nothing and beat Cindy so severely that she ended up being rushed to the hospital. I mean, she had been injured by Bobby before. He had broken her 
nose three times already. But this was the first time she had to be hospitalized because of the injuries that he gave her. So this was a wake up call for her. She laid in her hospital bed like, bitch, I'm done. I got to get rid of this guy somehow. So she gets out of the hospital and a few days later, while Bobby Joe is asleep, she sneaks over and gets his double barrel shotgun as she loaded it and sat on the end of the bed watching him sleep, thinking, should I do it? Should I just end it now? What about my two kids? If I kill their father, I might go to jail. What's going to happen to my kids? So she's having all these big thoughts and she sat there all night contemplating, trying to work up the courage to do it. And then Bobby Joe woke up. And he looked up at her and he saw her and he just started laughing when he said, do it. Go ahead. You don't have the guts. And he was right. She couldn't shoot him. But I think him laughing at her made her snap out of it and come back to reality. And she was like, oh my God, I gotta go. I gotta take my kids and go. Which was obviously the right choice. And Cindy managed to take her kids and file for divorce. Great job. So now it's 1981. Bobby Joe is 27 and he decides to move from Miami to Tampa. And he got a roommate and he got a job. Cool. But now he didn't have a wife. What was he going to do about his ridiculous post-accident sex drive? Rape people, I guess. Now it is possible that Bobby Joe was raping women when he was living down in Miami and was still married. We don't know. There are some unsolved rape cases from Miami that people believe may be linked to him, but we don't have the proof. But I just wanted to mention that. Bobby Joe being single and a rapist <laughs> started in Tampa. And he was looking in the classified ads, you know, for, for furniture and shit for his new place. And he was like, light bulb? This is a great way to find women. He's like, so wait, strangers put up ads for their stuff and then they let you come into their house? So Bobby Joe started pouring over the classified ads, circling the ones that sounded like maybe it was a woman selling something like shabby chic floral couch. Okay, yeah, I'm going to that one. So this was Bobby Joe Long's MO now. He would set up meetings and when he showed up to view whatever it was, if it was a woman... He would act very interested and get into the apartment. He would scope it out, make sure there was no husband, no boyfriend. And if they were alone, he would attack. He brought his own little rape kit bag full of all of his tools that he needed. And he would tie the woman up, sexually assault her, and then rob the place. And then he would leave, leaving the poor woman tied up in her own home. And Bobby Joe Long did this constantly for three straight years without getting caught. And it's not like people didn't notice. Like people saw his face. People went to the police. People reported it. He was in the paper. Watch out for the classified ads rapist. Now, during this three years, this wasn't Bobby Joe's only method for finding women to attack. And we don't really know I'm sure we never will. Within that three-year period, Bobby Joe was also accused of sexually assaulting an old roommate of his. A different source I read said it was a co-worker, so maybe she was both. But either way, that accusation went all the way to court. But I guess the jury thought she was lying, and he totally got away with it scot-free. And when he walked out of the courtroom, he laughed in her face. Believe women. That same year, he was caught sending nude photographs and explicit letters to a 12-year-old girl. And this went to trial too, but he ended up getting six months probation and a less than $70 fine. Slap on the wrist. In April 1984, Bobby Joe pulled a pew-pew on a woman in a parking lot and forced her into her car. Now, this woman was named Mary Hicks, and she drove this super nice vintage Jaguar. 
And she parked in a store parking lot, went in, bought her stuff, came out and saw a man staring at her car. And she was like, what else is new? My car is amazing. She goes over and chats with this guy. And after a while of talking to him about the car, she thought, oh, he seems harmless. And he asked her if she'd take him for a ride. And she agreed. But as soon as they got in the car, this man pulled out a pew pew and pointed it at her and told her to drive somewhere secluded. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, this man was obviously Bobby Joe Long. But Mary was not having any of his shit. She was not about to drive somewhere secluded. So she jerked the wheel and smashed her beautiful vintage Jaguar into a telephone pole. She managed to get out of the car and run for help. So Bobby Joe was arrested, but the police couldn't find the pew pew that Bobby Joe pulled on Mary. So I don't know. They let him go. He got away with it. He was ordered probation again, and he had to pay for the damages to Mary's car. But dude, so he was just free to go on being the classified ads rapist. And we really don't know how many women he attacked, but many believe the number is between 50 and 100. Some believe it's even more than that. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a lot of people. And this was in the span of three years. That's crazy. But after three years of diligently hunting down women via classified ads, that just wasn't doing it for him anymore. I mean, it was a lot of footwork. He just wanted to be like, I want to attack a woman right now and just go and get one. He didn't want to have to like get the paper and circle the ads and make an appointment and go to her house. And maybe there's a husband there. So that was wasted time for him. And without realizing it, just by changing his MO, Bobby was about to go on a killing streak. So Bobby Joe went out to go try a new tactic on March 28th, 1984. So Bobby Joe drove downtown Tampa to an area that was known for sex work. And he picked up a 21-year-old named Artis Wick. And he asked her to hop into his car. She's thinking he's just a typical John. But when she hopped in, he drove her somewhere secluded and sexually assaulted her. But what made this one different was that that just wasn't enough for Bobby Joe. He wasn't satisfied. He flew into a rage. Some speculate it was due to mommy issues and that because she was a sex worker and she was wearing very revealing clothing that this triggered something in him. But I mean, we can try and pick apart the psychology of it all, all day long. But the bottom line is he snapped and he began choking Artis and he killed her. And then he panicked and he didn't know what to do. So he just drove down to the river and just threw her in and drove away and was like, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. And he got lucky, I guess, because Artis's body would not be discovered for a while. And he was worried that this switch from the classified ad rapist to killer was going to get him caught. Like he'd gotten away with rape so many times and he had even gone to trial for some of these rapes and he had gotten away with it. So he was feeling pretty confident in that department, but now he'd killed someone. So he was like frantically checking the paper, checking the news to see if they found that body, but nothing. He waited two months and he heard nothing. So he was like, okay, I'm going to do that again. And on May 13th, 1984, he hopped back in his car and he went cruising. He went back to another area known for sex work and known for strip clubs. And he saw a woman in what he considered to be provocative clothing walking down the sidewalk. And this was 19-year-old Luinti Long who went by Lana. Lana was an exotic dancer at a nearby strip club and she was walking home after her shift and Bobby Joe pulled up next to her and offered her a ride. So she said, sure. He seemed harmless and she told him how to get to her apartment. But he 
he just ignored her, drove right past her turn and kept on driving. He drove to a remote area and pulled over. Then he pulled out a knife and threatened her, told her to remove all of her clothes and sexually assaulted her. He strangled her with a piece of rope. And Bobby just left Lana's body in a field. Two weeks later, on May 27th, 1984, Bobby Joe went right back to the same area where he had picked up Lana. And he picked up Michelle Sims, 22 years old. And she was a former beauty pageant contestant from California. But Michelle had fallen on hard times. And she was now working as a sex worker in Tampa. And unfortunately, Michelle just got into the wrong freaking car. Bobby Joe drove Michelle to a remote area, sexually assaulted her, strangled her, slit her throat, and dumped her body. And this guy was moving fast fast. Two weeks after Michelle, June 8th, 1984, Bobby was out driving and saw 22-year-old Elizabeth Loudenback. And Elizabeth was a factory worker walking home from her shift. And I guess Bobby liked her look. So he offered her a ride home and she said, sure. And Elizabeth got in the car and then she told him, no funny business. But Bobby drove her to a secluded area, sexually assaulted her twice, and then strangled her with rope and dumped her on the side of the road. At this point, Bobby had killed four women in under two months. And three of the four bodies had been found. His number one artist had not been found, but Lana, Michelle, and Elizabeth's body had been found by police. And right away, they connected those three bodies and they were like, serial killer. And on top of that, the way they were found were all pretty much identical. They were all nude. All of their hands were tied behind their backs. They were found face down and their legs were always spread wide apart just for dramatic effect because he is a sick, sick fucker. After the autopsies of all three women, the same red fibers were found on all three bodies. And the forensic scientists that found the red fibers determined that it was from red carpet. So they believed that all three of these victims had been transported in the same car. So the sheriff's office made this connection and they were like, you know what? We should call the FBI. So the FBI got involved and they created a profile of the man they were looking for. And here is the profile that the FBI came up with. White man. (laughs) Duh. Recently divorced. High school dropout. Anger issues. Recent military experience. And resented women. Wait, that fucking sounds like Bobby Joe. (laughs) But the FBI didn't know Bobby Joe like we know Bobby Joe. But sadly for the FBI, this is when Bobby Joe decided, I need a break. I need to take a break or I'm going to get caught. And he took a three month break from his hobby. But when Bobby Joe survived the summer, he jumped back in. September 7th, 1984, Vicki Elliott, a hotel worker, was walking to her night shift. And unfortunately for her, Bobby Joe saw her. He pulls up and offers her a ride to work. And she said, sure. But as soon as she got in the car, Bobby Joe pulled a knife. And he did the usual. Three weeks later, September 30th, 1984, 18-year-old Chanel Williams was out walking the streets and Bobby Joe noticed her. Now, Chanel had just been released from jail for prostitution. That, you know, that word. And Bobby can really just spot a vulnerable person. He offered her a ride and you know what happened next. But after killing Chanel, he actually shot her in the back of the head also before dumping her body. But then he still posed her for a dramatic effect and then drove off. Two weeks later, October 13th, 1984, Bobby picked up 28-year-old Karen Dinsfriend and he also followed his usual MO with Karen. At this point in mid-October, all of the bodies had been found and connected to each other except for Artis, victim number one, and Vicky, the hotel worker. On Halloween, October 31st, 1984, Bobby Joe struck again, attacking 22-year-old Kimberly Hops. Her body was 
discovered very quickly. And after this, women all over Tampa were afraid to go outside alone at night because of this killer attacking women. And because this was such big news, even Ted Bundy himself reached out to the FBI offering to help find this killer. Shut up, Ted. No one wants your help. But eventually, though, Bobby Joe got kind of tired of having to go out and find women to attack. And then he got this bright idea that if he could just kidnap a girl and hold her as his sex slave, he wouldn't have to go out driving at night looking for somebody. He'd have somebody at the house all the time. So in November, Bobby Joe went out looking for a girl to snatch. And suddenly he saw the perfect girl out riding her bike. And this girl was 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh, the girl I mentioned at the very beginning of today's story. But what he didn't realize was that Lisa was smarter than him. And Lisa would be the reason that Bobby Joe Long got caught. Now, this is a great time for me to tell you a little bit about Lisa McVeigh, the hero of our story. Lisa McVeigh was born in March in 1967, and she was born to parents that were both alcoholic drug addicts. Her father disappeared out of the picture when she was still a baby, and unfortunately, her mother was too deep into her drug addiction to be able to care for her. So Lisa was placed in the foster care system when she was two. She bounced around to different foster care families from ages two to seven, some of which were abusive. And when she was seven, for some reason, she was put back in the care of her mother. Despite the fact that her mother was still struggling with her addiction, had no money, no job, and pretty quickly they were unhoused and living on the streets, in street camps, in the backs of cars, wherever. So not a stable or safe childhood at all. And this went on for years until eventually Lisa was placed in the care of her grandmother when she was 13. But that was a fucking bad choice because her grandma was a piece of shit. And grandma also had a shitty live-in boyfriend who was a pedophile. So, and the second that Lisa got into this house, the sexual abuse began. And that motherfucker abused Lisa every single day for the next four years and even called Lisa his girlfriend. And he frequently would threaten her and put a pew-pew to her head, telling her she could never tell anyone about the abuse that she was going through. So Lisa's stuck in this hellhole. She's 17 years old and she is struggling with depression, obviously. And she just gave up. She didn't see life as worth living. She just couldn't take it anymore. And she made the decision to take her own life. And on November 1st, 1984, she wrote a suicide note and she planned to go to work and then end her life that night after work. So Lisa worked at a donut shop and she worked the late shift that night and she got off work at 2 a.m. on November 2nd, 1984. She's riding her bike home. She rides past the church and she sees a strange car by itself in the church parking lot under the streetlight. And it's odd because it's just one car. It's 2 a.m. Who hangs out in a church parking lot at night? So she's riding through the parking lot, looking over at the car in curiosity. And before she knows it, a big arm wraps around her from behind and yanks her off of her bike. Her bike goes smashing to the ground. Immediately, she starts kicking and screaming and fighting until she felt the cold metal of the tip of a gun on her temple. And she heard the man say, shut up or I'll blow your brains out. And it was at this very moment that Lisa realized she wanted to live and to think she was planning on ending her life that night. And now here she is being kidnapped and this will to live and to fight just washes over her. And she just tells this guy, I'll do whatever you want. Just don't kill me. 
Bobby Joe tied up Lisa, blindfolded her, and threw her into the back of the car. There was a little gap at the bottom of her blindfold, so she could kind of see a few things. So she stayed calm, and she was just looking everywhere, trying to memorize everything she could see. As they approached the car, she was like, this car has a mismatched tire. When she was in the car, she could see the silver letters spelling Magnum on the glove compartment. And the interior of the car was covered in this hideous red carpet. And Lisa credits... Watching a lot of crime shows for the way she was able to handle this situation. You see, watching this bullshit is not worthless. <laughs> Bobby Joe forced Lisa to remove all of her clothes and he assaulted her right there in the backseat. After telling her that she better show him a good time. Lisa remembers being very calm. And in that moment, she decided, I'm going to play along. She thought playing along would help her get out of this in the end. And... <laughs> It's horrifying to say this, but she had been assaulted every day for years already. So to her, this was a pretty common occurrence. Obviously very different and obviously a different man. But Lisa knew how to calm herself in this situation. Bobby Joe drove Lisa to his apartment in Tampa, forcing her to do things to him while he was driving. And Lisa carefully counted the minute it took to get to his apartment. And as he led her up to his apartment, she counted every step they took up to his apartment. As soon as they got into the apartment, he threw her on the bed and assaulted her again. And this was the beginning of Lisa's 26-hour captivity. Bobby Joe took Lisa into the bathroom and assaulted her again. And then it was like a switch flipped in his brain and he just turned into a different person. And he told Lisa that she was going to take a shower with him. And he was acting super sweet to her, like as if they were on a date. He was washing her hair, telling her she was pretty. And then after the shower, he brushed her hair and freaking gave her a blowout. I'm not kidding. It is so weird and fucked up. He's like blow drying her hair and giggling and telling Lisa how much he liked her. And then he said, maybe I should keep you. And it goes without saying that Lisa was terrified throughout this entire situation. And Lisa's pretty sure she could be killed at any moment, but she kept her shit calm. Then she just played along with this guy and she was giggling with him too, saying, OMG, I like you too. Hee <laughs> hee. Like, oh my God, give this girl an Oscar. She was like, yeah, I could totally stay. She was playing up this like, I'm a naive little girl personality, but she was playing him and it was working. And Bobby Joe was just thinking everything was going so well. And he asks her, hey, do you think we could have sex again? And Lisa was like, yeah, sure. Sounds great. Obviously, she did not want to. And obviously, this was still rape. She was just trying to survive. After this assault, Bobby Joe forced Lisa to pleasure him multiple times. I just forced her to like perform and act like she liked it. And after hours of this, then she had to give him a back rub. But Lisa just went along with it. And it really made him trust her. And after the back rub, Bobby told her, get some sleep. And he just fell asleep just like that right next to her. But Lisa did not sleep at all. My God, how could you? She was thinking like, I could get up. I could run. But like, what if he's not sleeping? What if this is a trick? What if he's waiting for me to do that? He had the gun on his side of the bed. And she was worried if she even moved, she could be killed. So she just laid there awake, terrified all night. But she spent her entire night coming up with a plan to escape. 
So Bobby Joe woke up and of course he assaulted her again. And then afterwards, she told him that she needed to use the bathroom. So he let her and he let her go into the bathroom by herself and close the door. So clearly he was really trusting her. And now she's still blindfolded. She has been this whole time and she still hasn't even seen this guy's face. But as soon as she gets in that bathroom and closes the door, she starts touching everything. She is touching the door. She's touching the walls, the mirror. She stands on the toilet. She's touching the ceiling. She wanted to make sure she had fingerprints everywhere so that if she gets out of this or even if she doesn't there would be proof that she was in that apartment when she came out lisa was forced to endure hours of assaults again but she managed to keep her cool even when she heard her own news report on the tv that she was missing like he just had the news on playing probably trying to keep tabs on the cops and she hears the news report saying that she is missing and bobby heard it too and he told her if you scream or you try to run i'll put a bullet in your head then in an effort to collect even more information about this guy while she was being assaulted she asked bobby joe if she could touch him so she was caressing his face but while she was doing that she was memorizing all of his features hoping that if she gets out she'll be able to still describe him even though she hasn't seen him and as the day dragged on with just repeated assaults she was asking him questions and she talked to him as she told him made up stories about herself trying to humanize herself and make him feel bad for her she told him that she was the sole caretaker for her father who was very sick and he had had 20 heart attacks and if she didn't get home to him he was gonna die and bobby was like oh that's awful so much pressure for a young girl she's like yeah then she asked him questions about him like what's your name but he wouldn't tell her that but then she asked him why are you doing this you seem like a nice guy and he told her that he had just recently gotten divorced and that he hated women and he just wanted to punish them so he kidnaps women and rapes them and kills them to teach them a lesson and lisa was like oh that is so sad you're so nice i'll be your girlfriend we don't have to tell anybody how we met like we can keep this part a secret and oh man this made bobby feel so bad so bad in fact that he stopped assaulting her he's like oh now i feel like a dick i can't do this anymore let's just cuddle he says so they just cuddled for hours and then all of a sudden at hour 26 of captivity at three something in the morning bobby joe just sat up and he said well i can't keep you anymore i have to take you home and Lisa was like, holy shit, it worked. He got her dressed. She was still blindfolded. And he just drove her home. First, he stopped at an ATM and then a gas station. And then at 4.30 in the morning, he dropped her off a few blocks from her home, told her to wait five minutes before taking off her blindfold and going home. And then he told her, quote, tell your father he's the reason I didn't kill you, end quote. And then he just drove off and left her there. So Lisa followed orders, waited several minutes before she took off her blindfold, and then she just freaking sprinted home to her grandma's house. She burst into the door, and she told them what happened to her. And they didn't believe her. And the boyfriend accused Lisa of cheating on him, and then started beating her up. Mm. 
throw the whole man in the garbage. Thankfully, Lisa went to the police on her own anyway. She's like, I have two legs. She walks into the police station. She tells them everything. But she was a minor, so the police called her shitty grandma and the shitty boyfriend for some reason. And Waste of Space Granny gets there and tells the cops that Lisa's a liar. And a bunch of these shitty 1984 Tampa cops thought Lisa was a liar too. They were like, you know what? You're way too calm for someone who's been through that. Unbelievable. Oh, it pisses me off. But luckily, one fucking cop, Sergeant Larry Pinkerton, he thought Lisa's details were just way too specific to be made up. Something about her story. He was like, no, this is real. And he demanded an investigation. Thank God. A few days later, Lisa saw the news and they were reporting that they found a body in the area. And when they described the woman and how she was found and all this, she was like, that's him. The guy that kidnapped me, he killed her. And she just knew she just had this gut feeling. So she called Larry Pinkerton and was like, come and get me. I have more to tell you. So he went and picked up Lisa and Waste of Space Granny and Waste of Space Granny's boyfriend. And Lisa told Larry all about the things that her kidnapper had said, how he hated women and how he attacked women in this area. And she just had a feeling her kidnapper was this killer. And then Larry asks Lisa, would you be willing to be hypnotized? And we could like dig out any hidden memories that you might have. And immediately the pedophile boyfriend was like, nope, absolutely. Absolutely not. She won't be hypnotized. I do not consent. Lisa snapped. And she looks at Larry and she tells him, this guy's been abusing me for four years. She laid everything out, told him all about the abuse she's been suffering in that house. And Larry just stood up and arrested the guy. Oh, can you imagine the satisfaction she must have felt to see that guy in handcuffs right in front of her? And she got a huge boost of confidence. And she was like, okay, one of my abusers is now caught. Time to get the other one. Waste of Space Granny is sent home and Lisa is sent to a home for runaway teens just for a freaking safe place to sleep. Then Larry Pinkerton, he's looking through all of Lisa's statements and he was familiar with this serial killer case. So he's going through all of that evidence. And two things jump out to him immediately. Number one, red fibers. All of the victims of the serial killer had red fibers on their body. And Lisa described bright red carpet in her kidnapper's car. And number two, Lisa said that his car had a mismatched tire. And at one of the sites where one of the bodies was found, there were tire tracks in the mud. And in the tire tracks, they could see that one of the tires was mismatched. So with Lisa's help, Larry had a rough sketch drawn up of her kidnapper's face based on her memories of touching his face. She never saw it, just touched it. And they got a description of the car, the red Dodge Magnum with the shitty red carpet. Now the body of 18-year-old Virginia Johnson was discovered two days after Lisa's escape, but she was actually killed before Lisa was kidnapped. And then a few days after Lisa went to police, 22-year-old Kim Marie Swan's body was found. And it was that news story that made Lisa call Larry Pinkerton again. So Kim was Bobby's only victim after Lisa was kidnapped. Now police all over Tampa had the description of this car and they were all out looking for it. And an officer was just out patrolling on November 15th and he just looked up and was like, oh, there's that car I'm supposed to be looking for. So he just pulls him over and he checks his ID. So now we know the driver of this suspected vehicle is Bobby Joe Long. But this cop, he just said, oh, well, we're looking for some burglars. So that's why I pulled you over. But he didn't have real reason to arrest him. So he just let him go. So now we have a name to go with the car and a face. So Larry has a photo lineup made up with Bobby Joe Long's face in it and shows it to Lisa at the home for the runaway teens. And she immediately picks out. Bobby Joe. And she never even saw his face, but as soon as she saw it, she's like, oh, that's him. Just from feeling it. 
And Bobby Joe Long was arrested on November 17th as he walked out of a movie theater. They got his car and they found that the red carpet was an exact match to the red fibers found on the bodies. They got into his apartment and they found it was exactly as Lisa had described. And they found her fingerprints all over the bathroom. And they found Lisa's barrette in the apartment. And they found a bunch of photos of nude women. And they found freaking selfies that Bobby Joe had taken of himself while assaulting his victims. They love to incriminate themselves, don't they? So they arrest Bobby Joe Long and they interview him. And right away, he admitted to kidnapping Lisa McVeigh because he was caught. Then they showed him photos of five of the serial killer's victims. And they're like, you recognize these women? And he was like, no. And then he asked to go pee. And then when he came back, they showed him all of the physical evidence they had against him. And then Bobby Joe said, huh, I think I need an attorney. But one of the sergeants said, quote, you might as well be honest because we have a solid case against you with the physical evidence alone, end quote. And Bobby said, quote, well, I guess you got me good. Yes, I killed them. All the ones in the paper. I did them all, end quote. He said he set himself up when he let Lisa go. He said, I knew when I let her go, it was only a matter of time. I didn't even tell her not to go to the police or anything. I just didn't care anymore and I wanted to stop. I was sick inside, end quote. Bobby Joe gave a full confession and when it was transcribed, it was 45 pages long. And he confessed to 10 murders. The police had only found eight bodies. But after Bobby Joe's confession, the police were able to find the bodies of Vicki Elliott and they found the body of Artis Wick, who was the first victim. Bobby Joe was held in prison until his trial and he was so gross and he spit at the cameras at his trial. Whatever, it doesn't matter. He sucks and he was sentenced to death. And he sat on death row for so many years. Why does it take so long? He was arrested in 1984 and he wasn't executed until 2019. While on death row, Bobby Joe did a bunch of TV interviews. And with a camera in his face, he confessed to being the classified ads rapist from Tampa. He claims he doesn't know why he raped or murdered these women. And he talked about Lisa in the interviews. He knew she was special from the moment he grabbed her. And that that's probably why she is alive and walking today. A lot of lives just gone right down the tubes because of me. And it's not a good feeling. It's not a pleasant feeling. I'm not proud of anything I've done. And the worst thing is, I don't understand why. Whatever. He's gross. Bye, bitch. But let me tell you about Lisa McVeigh. The horrible ordeal that she went through inspired her to turn her life around, to live her life, and to help people. Lisa aged out of the runaway teen shelter, and she went to go live with an aunt and uncle. And in 2004, Lisa signed up for the police academy, and she joined the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, the same office that caught Bobby Joe Long, and she began specializing in sex crimes. She is amazing. And Lisa McVeigh Noland is also a motivational speaker and she tells the story of her abduction to anyone who will listen with the hope of helping and inspiring others. And just for the cherry on top of this story, in 2019, Lisa attended Bobby Joe Long's execution and she sat in the front row and she was wearing a t-shirt that said, Long overdue. And she said she sat in the front row because she wanted to be the first and last thing that he ever saw. Bobby DeLong, people ask me what I would say to you if you were standing in front of me, and here's my answer. Bobby DeLong, thank you. Thank you for choosing me instead of another 17-year-old little girl. The reason why I say thank you now is because I have forgiven you for what you have done to me. Had I not forgiven you, I might as well be in my own prison without walls. My life changed forever and for the better. 
I chose not to remain a victim. I chose to live. Bobby Joe Long's known victims were Artis Wick, 20, Lana Long, 19, Michelle Sims, 22, Elizabeth Loudenbach, 22, Vicki Elliott, 21, Chanel Williams, 18, Karen Dinsfriend, 28, Kimberly Hops, 22, Virginia Johnson, 18, and Kim Swan, 21. And of course, Lisa McVeigh, the reason he got caught, Mary Hicks, the quick thinker that crashed her Jaguar, and many, many others who were sexually assaulted by Bobby Joe Long, the classified ads rapist. And that is the end of today's true crime story about Bobby Joe Long and that queen, Lisa McVeigh. If you liked today's episode, please give me a like and leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought and let me know if you have a case that you'd like to request that I cover on Cleaning and Crime. Thank you so much for watching or listening and don't forget to subscribe and follow along. I'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cleaning in Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube, TikTok, or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise. If you have questions or case ideas to share, email me at cEliseclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes and all parties discussed are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time. 